Chance, you're talking about this uh, tumultuous upbringing that you had and just uh, probably a lot processing at the age that you were. Or can you look back and see that any of that stuff contributed to you know, creating one of the most successful game franchises of all time? So when I moved down to Indian Harbor Beach, um, it was just like, you know, oh, my parents are getting divorced, you know, just kind of out of nowhere. And now I'm going to live with my mom and some random dude I didn't know, right? And so I basically, you know, spent a lot of time just locking myself in my room with my Tandy 2000 computer. Basically, I would go into uh, games on my PC. Um, there were just two games called Gorillas and Nibbles. And Nibbles was Snake. Remember Snake on the Nokia's? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Nibbles. And it was written in basic code, which is, I mean, it's basic code is pretty basic. Like, you can read it and kind of figure out more or less what's happening. Mm-hmm. I would basically reverse engineer uh, this code and try to figure out how to make my own games. Welcome to the Legacy Angel Network Venture Lounge, where nothing ventured is nothing changed. For Matt Hollenthaler, press 1. For member services, press 2. For real raw startup stories, press 3. For all other questions or concerns, please wait on the line in our next... Good evening, everyone. I'm Matt Hollenthaler, and you're listening to Venture Lounge, after-hour conversations with founders and investors. These are the stories, insights, and conversations that you aren't going to find on the company website. Because the real lessons you learn in the startup world, the risk you take as an entrepreneur, the highs and the lows, the moments in your journey when no one else believes in you right before you break through, those are the moments that you just have to hear for yourself. So grab a drink and listen in to the men and women who are changing the world. Welcome to the Venture Lounge. Welcome back to Venture Lounge, everyone. Thanks for calling in. I'm Connor Sherman. Here's co-host with Legacy Angel Network founder, Matt Hemmentoller. Matt, hello. thanks for sitting in. And uh, we're really excited to be sitting across from a friend in the gaming industry, a creative director at Good Dog uh, Studios, among a few other ventures, as well as, uh, like we were previously talking about, one of the co-founders of Infinity Ward and the Call of Duty franchise, little tiny franchise, if anyone's ever heard of it. Uh, Chance Glasgow, thanks for... Coming to the What's line, guys. Man. Yeah, yeah. Good Cheers, day. man. Welcome. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Cheers from a distance here, bro. Oh, you, you oh, go the distance, oh, chance. You're, oh, you're committed. Really you're committed. You're committed, man. Yeah, I like gadget it. arms. <laughs> and uh, I mean, all the way uh, to Brevard, man. Thanks for coming back. You, back can, home, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. And you guys have a little bit of in common with that, yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's it's funny how the world works, right? Like yeah. so so um, I'm at an event, my first one. Over in Orlando, yeah. at the uh, what that was you, your first time. That was my first one. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, that was that's the the Orlando Tech Council. Orlando yeah. Tech Council. There's yeah. a few acronym tech organizations out there. Yeah, just a, just a couple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm at I'm at this event and I'm 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 you know meeting a few folks and I think you came up to me actually. Yeah, I think uh, no, we were actually waiting for a, a drink together. We yes. talked. <laughs> that's right. And then that's I right. reconvened with you because Charlie was like, "You got to meet this guy." Yeah. And then he brought me over. And then it was like, and oh, yeah. I was like, oh, I recognize I'm yeah. standing next to you. Yeah, so we go way back. Tall guy like with a beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah so so, um, so that's where, I, you know, obviously I met you, but um, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize until we started talking about it that, like, you're, you're from Brevard County. Like, yeah. this, is your, this is your homeland. Yeah, I mean, um, I ended up in Brevard County uh, through 
some crazy events. <laughs> I was actually technically kidnapped to Florida, and that's how I ended up in Brevard County. What? Yeah, so... You, uh, all right. Go and elaborate gotta, on that. You, no. <laughs> elaborate or don't. Like, how, how do you end up in Florida? Well, for painkillers or getting kidnapped? I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm glad I didn't come to uh, Florida as a six-year-old for painkillers. That would be bad. Um, Anyways, I love this is Florida. so dark, but it's yeah, great. It is. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, um, yeah domestic. Uh, so, um, just to preface uh, my childhood, you've got my biological father and mother divorced when I was like one. My biological father uh, married new stepmom. Stepmom's ex-husband married my mom. Oh, like a swap. Yeah. Yeah. So. Ooh. You see where that would go. It's like a permanent episode of Wife Swap. Yeah, or like Jerry Springer. <laughs> for like, yeah, yeah. For like 18 oh, years. You know? Oh, wow. Oh, wow, man. Um, and so it, it was one of those, like, it was a, it was technically, so I had to go see my dad. Um, and, you know, at the time, he had some drinking problems, and it was just a bad place to, to, to be around, right? Um, you know, no violence or anything, but just a really bad place for a kid. So I'd come back as like a three-year-old, four-year-old on the weekends, you know, upset, because the state of Oklahoma said I had to go there. Mm. And so as a result, um, my, my stepdad, I was like, you know, went and secured a job at Cape Canaveral working at USBI, which was a NASA contractor that did the solid rocket boosters. Oh, wow. And so we disappeared in the middle of the night. Um, the only people that knew where we were was my grandmother and then my aunt, who was in Decatur, Alabama, because we went to Decatur for six months in this whole process. Oh, wow. Once my, my, my stepdad secured the, 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 the job, uh, we moved to Brevard, and I went to Titusville. And so I um, grew up, starting out in Brevard, living in, like, Section 8 housing, like in some questionable parts of Titusville, mm. right? <laughs> uh, some good times. And I was, you know, technically a missing, kidnapped kid till I was nine. Wow, man. Um, and then detectives found me, did a big court battle. I think the court was actually in Rockledge. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, just the, the state or the, um, at the end they decided that I could stay in Florida, but I had to go to see my dad once a month or, um, for a month out of the year during the summer. And so mm -hmm. I did that, uh, through my, you know, early teens, um, but still stayed here, went to, you know, uh, Hoover junior high. Yeah. Uh, we had the same science teacher, which is nuts. Mr. Carpenter, Mr. Carpenter, yeah, who's your neighbor, right? Shout, yeah. He was, yeah. Shout out to Mr. Shout Carpenter. Out to Mr. Carpenter. Mr. Carpenter, you need Sub to be watching Jeb. this. Yes, right. <laughs> yes, right. Um, and yeah, ended up growing up uh, beachside. We're actually first, first Titusville. And then my mom got divorced again when I was like 11 or 12. That's how we ended up beachside. Mm. And then uh, satellite, or went to Delora for like six months, which, um, you know, I didn't have a good experience there, but it was all the same kids I went to satellite with. So I think I was just unlucky. Right. Because I had a really good time at satellite. But for some reason, the kids at Hoover were nicer. But you I think it was just like coincidence more than anything. It's the same demographic. I went to both schools. I went yeah. to Delora and Hoover. Yeah. And definitely the kids at Hoover, Hoover. were nicer. They were nicer. Really? Yeah. Well, it is. Hmm. Maybe they're more like military up there. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. Everybody at, at Delora just seemed kind of like pissed off. In, in general, like, yeah, yeah, know, but including yeah. The it was the only time that, I was know. bullied, like, yep. my whole life, I, like, that I could think of, like, seriously bullied. But, um, but yeah, anyways, uh, then went to Full Sail. I didn't even know it existed until like my junior year. Found out they had a school that does like animation hmm. and digital arts and recording arts, all the cool, fun entertainment stuff. Checked were, it out. Were you like always interested in that, by the way? Yeah, I grew up, you know, playing video games, right. and then uh, what's that? Right, yeah. yeah, so I grew up playing video games, and then also. 
you know, Jurassic Park came out when we were kids and seeing the dinosaurs, that made me really interested uh, in animation. And so I knew I wanted to do animation, either games or, or film, like special effects. So I went out there, full sail, 15 months later, um, graduated, um, decided to head to California to look for work. And I got there, had a horrible like month out there, found like nothing. I think I got offered extra work on X-Files, but that's not what I was going there to be. I wasn't going to be a really underpaid actor, you know? So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so went there for that and did not find any actual work. Was, co uh, was coming back to Orlando, because I was staying there for Full Sail, and stopped in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is where I was born, and um, got an internship working on Medal of Honor Allied Assault, which was the first Medal of Honor that was ever on PC. Mm. I'm, I'm familiar, by the you way. Played, yeah. Did you play Allied Assault for, for PC? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That was, it, was, it, was the best, it was the best one. I, I, beat the <laughs> I beat the PlayStation version. Yeah, <laughs> the DreamWorks that? one. Yeah, yes. Yeah. That's the one I... Um, I and so it. that's kind of what happened is, uh, that's how I got in the industry. I, I uh, sent an email with like one or two animations to the one animator there and said, hey, I will do anything to get my foot in the door. Just like, give me some work. I'll make it happen. And they gave mm -hmm. me an opportunity. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how I ended up in Tulsa again and lived there for a year and a half, two years before... Um, well, what happened is we, we worked on Medal of Honor. We didn't really like the, the guy that we worked for. And so 22 of 30 of us decided to leave. We formed a new studio called Infinity Ward. And uh, we actually connected with EA at first, right, who we were working on mm. Medal of Honor because EA didn't want to work with this guy either, mm. right? And so they're like, hey, we'll help you, you know, come out of that studio, start a new one. You do uh, Medal of Honor Spearhead, which was the expansion pack. And uh, so we started working on that. And then a few months into it or so, uh, EA, or maybe it's like six, four or five, six months, EA said, we're going to absorb you into our mega office in Bel Air over in Los Angeles into a team of like 200-something people. And we were a Jeez. team of 22. And we're like, if you put us in a studio with like 200-plus other people, you're going to lose the magic that we mm -hmm. had on this last project. Right. And so there was a lot of debate, like, you know, what do we do? Do we? And in the end, we're just like, we're not going to do it. They didn't pay us for the work either, like the previous few months. Oh, geez. Um, and we had to scramble and look for another publisher. And so, um, you know, uh, Grant, uh, Vince, and Jason, you know, were the, the main heads of the studio. Uh, they were scrambling around looking for, you know, another opportunity. And so Activision was basically like, look, we, we know you guys don't want to be absorbed into a mega studio. We allow our studios like Neversoft to stay independent. Can you make a Medal of Honor killer, basically? Can you make a game that competes with your last game? And so we had to start over and make another World War II game that would compete with Medal of Honor um, that was also on the Quake 3 engine. But all the work we'd done to the Quake 3 engine for Call of Duty was owned by Activision, or was owned by EA. Hmm. So all the engine work we did on um, the first Call of Duty had to be redone from, from scratch. Uh, Chance, be, just because I, I don't know, man, like um, the Quake 3 engine, is that like the equivalent of what's uh, Unreal or something? Today? Yeah, you so, know what I mean? so Quake, um, have you heard of John Carmack? Mm, yeah. Yeah, so John Carmack, Wolfenstein, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, id software. It was mostly his, his code, right? Okay. Because he wrote the code for the Doom engine, for all the Quakes. And so a lot of the games you played in the early 2000s, even the you know 2010ish and probably even now was base Quake 3 code. It was a Quake 3 engine where other developers got it and they started developing on top of it 
adding more features. Right. And so I would be surprised if the current Call of Duty engine didn't have any Quake 3 code in it, even though the game is, you know, more than 20 years old. I think. Oh, yeah, they've mm-hmm. all built on top yeah. of the predecessors. Yeah, you know? yeah, and, and it's it was always like a, you know, every time we'd release a new game, you know, Activision markets a, a new engine, right? And then people would be upset, like, no, it's it still has Quake 3 code in it. And, and to me, I see it, it's like a car. You know, if you say an all-new Mustang, they don't scratch everything they learn from 40, 50, 60 years of Mustangs, right? Right. They, they take the last and they reiterate on it and they make it better, right? So, Just uh, again, too, because I, I didn't know before, uh, really, uh, my wife and I attended Shawnee State in Portsmouth, Ohio, and it was like a uh, really well-known gaming program there, Game and Simulation. And yeah. so all of our roommates were gamers, and yeah. it was like, that's when I'm learning that these people uh, are like, you know, it's a lot of calculus-based physics. So it's a lot of complicated equipment. You know what I mean? It's not uh, It's not easy coding. It's not just slapping some paint on something. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's it's tough to be an engineer. Like, I, I'm an animator. I was an animator. Now I'm, I'm... But even that is, like, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of labor-intensive work that's... In, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of attention to detail. And animation's different because there's not one skill that transfers over to animation very well. I mean, there's acting... Um, and there's, like, directing. Those are the two things that can help you as an animator. But otherwise, it's kind of a skill that we don't ever use unless you're an animator, you know? Mm. Like, recreating human movement, usually human movement, and doing it in a way that no one notices it's not human-like. Because we look at humans all the time. That's why you have the whole uncanny valley thing, where if you see, you know, a bad CG character, it's almost real, but it's so close that it's just creepy and that's the same thing with animation <laughs> yeah. we look but, at people walk every day we see people walking so right. if you animate someone walking and it's one percent off people notice yeah so. mm. yeah you know with the with like i've heard things about the gaming industry that it's just a difficult you know fast-paced time-sensitive kind of environment you know how would you describe your experience um like you know getting into the industry yourself and then starting your own studio um, it's it's tough. I, like I'm I'm happy to be back to like a, a very small team. You know, because when we started, you know, like I said, 22 people. By the time you get more than like 65, 70, you start just not knowing people's names. Mm. You know, um, and you start to lose that tight chemistry. And there's also um, diminishing returns. Mm. You can't just double your studio size and have a gun or a, a game that's done, you know, twice as fast. It's just not how it works. Right. And so uh, with Good Dog Studios and Martial Arts Tycoon, you know, we're, we're a small team. And even after raising more, we plan to stay pretty tight and small. That's awesome. Because you know, I don't want to have, you know, five different people managing people. You know, I want everyone to be hands-on for the most part. Yeah, that, there, 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 there's so much to be said of that. that that's something that, that we even found here at our, at our, at our network. Like, I don't, I don't care how many of these lounges that we put across Brevard or even even expanding into Orlando, like we're talking about doing. Um, uh, we have a nice, small team. Everyone loves each other. Everyone knows what each other's thinking. We work well together. We're more efficient that, that yeah. way. We may, we may add few four, three or four or five more people in the long run, but, I mean, that small, intimate unit, we can get way, way, way more done than, than maybe a group of fifty or a hundred. Yeah, um, I basically want like a baseball roster would be my perfect. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. You know, you got nine full times, and then you have some people in your bullpen that are 
all over the world that you need to call on. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's smells good. I think. That's that's awesome. It's also like, you know, from an investment standpoint, there's obviously a lot risk, a lot less risk going into an indie studio, where you know you can finish a game for a few million versus a AAA game where if you know you don't have more than a hundred million, you're gonna have issues. You know, so yeah. Um, and then just build from there. You know, you just, you start small, and then you just kind of slowly see it ramp up. That's what we did at Infinity Ward. You know, um, 22 people made the first Call of Duty. When I left, it was, I mean, now there's thousands of people working on it. It's kind of insane. Multiple studios. What, what was that like, man, when you, you know, because, I mean, so many people that, that are going to watch these podcasts, both now and, and our future audiences, um, you know, so many of them, like, have, have an idea. You know, and they want to go out, and they want to they want to venture out. They want to do something, um, and um, you, know, you came from a really successful project, and then you know, you and and these twenty other thirty other people were like, "Yeah, we're out." That had to be kind of scary. I mean, I mean, you really are venturing out into the unknown. Yeah. Like, what was that like for you? What were the conversations like? Where did you have any hesitation? Um, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. When we. Um I remember we all uh, we all kind of got together in a room and we were like, "Here's the situation. Um, EA's not paying us for what we did, and we're not going to work with them. And uh, we have and we kind of met and we decided amongst the group, you know, do we go to EA, Bel Air, or do we not? And I was actually, I'll admit, I was wrong at, at first. I was, uh, I think it was night twenty. No, no, <laughs> I was twenty one when this happened. Um, and I was one of the few voices who was like, hey, let's just uh, let's, let's go to L.A., you know? Um, and I'm glad that it didn't go that way because it wouldn't have panned out the way it did. I, I was taking, I think, the safe route. Eventually, the, as, as a group, you know, I, I was convinced otherwise, and I wasn't upset that we decided to just take this huge risk of just scrambling for a publisher. Um, but, yeah, going with Activision was the, the right choice. It sounds it sounds pretty cool that like you know most people when they're taking a risk, um, most people find themselves doing that alone to begin with. It's really cool that you had like, yeah, support support like, yeah, by yeah. people that were wiser than me, older than me. You know, um, I was the second youngest in the in the studio, mm. yeah. and so um, yeah, we made the first Call of Duty halfway through. We moved to L.A. Because it was really, at the time, really hard to find people who want to move to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, now it's easy because they're like, oh, what? I, I have a house for $300,000? Right. <laughs> and, and there's, like, cool stuff there now. Yeah. And I think what's happened is we've had so much overflow from major cities to medium cities that all these, you know, like a bunch of these medium-sized cities in the middle of the Midwest are now interesting places because people have moved out there and invested. So. Obviously, probably the bulk of the work in other studios were in L.A. Was that the case, or...? Uh, yeah, like I'd say, you know, L.A., Seattle, Dallas are like the major hotspots for game development. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Chance, um, you know, you're talking about just kind of this uh, tumultuous upbringing that you had and just uh, probably a lot processing at the age that you were, uh, like finding a love of video games early. Do you think how much of that contributed or can you look back and see uh, that any of that stuff contributed to, you know, creating one of the most successful game franchises of all time, you know? Yeah, I'd say just me getting involved for sure. I mean, so when I moved down to Indian Harbor Beach, um, it was just like, 
you know, oh, my parents are getting divorced, you know, just kind of out of nowhere, and now I'm going to live with my mom and some random dude I didn't know, right? And so I basically, you know, spent a lot of time just locking myself in my room with my Tandy 2000 computer. I don't know if it was a Tandy at the time. I might have a new one, new one by then. But basically, I would go into uh, games on my PC. Um, there were just two games called Gorillas and Nibbles. And Nibbles was Snake. Remember Snake on the Nokia's? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Nibbles. And it was written in basic code, which is, I mean, it's basic code is pretty basic. Like, you can read it and kind of figure out more or less what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so I would basically, I would basically reverse engineer uh, this code and try to figure out how to make my own games. And so I started making text-based adventure games with like zero graphics, where it's like Zork, Return to Zork. I don't know if you remember the old games where it's like you are in a room. There's a door on the left. There's a cat (laughs) who's meowing, you know, and you're like pet cat. I bet you'd be great in D and D. Yeah, I played a lot of a lot of Western RPGs. Um, And so I would start making my own text-based games like I you know the the one that comes to mind um, did it with my friend uh, Tommy that I grew up with and it was called the dentist who took over Compton <laughs> and it was a 1990s gangster rap text adventure game that's amazing where you're like this random white dentist from like the Hamptons that somehow gets <laughs> stranded in South Central Inglewood please like, tell me that's a game that can be played today. no I can't no, find no. it <laughs> it's lost in and, a hard drive somewhere and, or and it's probably not going to be found ever um <laughs> And so you basically, the, the goal of the game was to recover all of your dental tools. And you're encountering all these, like, knockoffs of 90s gangster rappers like Snoop Horky Dog. <laughs> and I, just, I was, like, 15. Is this I mean, in the hopper to be recreated? Uh, I have know. to get licensing, probably. There's a lot of... <laughs> yeah, it sounds I like a lot of very expensive li- But yeah. if I just do it as a parody, I don't have to get licensing. I guess it was kind of like a text-based GTA in its own way. I feel like that's something that, that <laughs> Snoop, awesome. Snoop would be in on, the little I know about I, him. I, I think I mean? he would. He plays Call of Duty. Does he? Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah so. Who doesn't, Chance? I'm ha- seriously. Have you met Snoop? Um, I have not met Snoop. Uh, Kanye West, we're probably not the most popular person to bring up right now. <laughs> I'm about Kanye West ahead. before uh, he was in the Nazis. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can edit this. Uh, this yeah, no, no, no. Right. So, no, 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 no. So before right, he was in the Nazis, uh, he played our Modern Warfare two release party or one. This is before he was. This is oh, back wow. when he was still like pretty underground ish. Okay. You know. Yeah. Um, but never Snoop Dogg. Oh, I hung out with uh, Rakim Wu Tang. Yeah. Wu Tang. Okay, Wu-Tang. cool. Yeah, yeah. Really? That was no a way. LA film school. What were you guys playing? Were you guys playing something together? Uh, this was at Los Angeles Film School. Actually, after I left Call of Duty, I was just doing consulting work for them. Um, LA Film School is like sister schools of Full Sail. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, I met um <laughs> I used to play a lot of. Um, you guys into baseball at all? No. Okay, well, there's, there's, yeah, there's, I used to collect anyway. baseball cards. All right, there's a pitcher yeah, named but... Cole Hamels who was on the Phillies, won the 2009. World Series, and we connected at Infinity Ward, exchanged gamer tags, and we used to play multiplayer Call of Duty together a lot. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but yeah, I'd meet a lot of athletes at the studios because they would, you know, have some time off. They'd be visiting the city for a game or something. They'd want to come get a tour, see how the game's made. Did, did you have any idea that it would be as successful as it was when you guys were working on it? Did you feel like it was, like, innovative, groundbreaking? You um, know? We, you know, we felt that there was some magic, but we, it was a slow, well, not slow, fairly slow ramp, you know, where I think Call of Duty 1 for PC sold like 800K or something, not even a million, probably mm-hmm. over a million eventually. Um, and then Call of Duty 2 was a launch title for Xbox 360, which was a big boost. So I think it might have sold a few million there. 
maybe more. Mm. And then by the time we hit, I think Modern Warfare 2 was like 29 million copies. Oh, jeez. Right? So it was just kind of just up and up and up. You, you said one of them sold, I saw a quote from you, or Full, full Sail had uh, the quote saying something about it outselling. Was it Modern Warfare 2 that outsold uh, Avatars? Oh, and we beat Avatar Pro- box office numbers. Yeah, which um, is... I don't know if it's a fair comparison, though, because it doesn't count DVDs that later come out. Okay. But at the time, it sounded really cool. It does sound (laughs) really cool. Now it's like it's what you expect. You're like, (laughs) what, a movie in a movie theater? Uh, Yeah. Better than this seventh most popular game that came out last week? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Um, what were your hours like working on this thing? I mean, were you all like full charge in? I mean, this was your life. There was a lot of 12-hour days, but unlike some other studios, like I want to say maybe it was Insomniac, Mm-hmm. They would crunch like something like 10 or 12 hour days, seven days a week. Mm. And we would do, when we were crunching, it was like 12 hour days, five days a week, um, which is a lot more manageable because you still have two days off. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't all the time. You know, that was, we, we were, we had better. I'd say that like Jason West was an incredible manager when it came to like development. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that and other people uh, involved in that, we didn't crunch as much as, as other AAA studios. So, what was that collaboration like, like process like? Where you, I mean, you you guys have you know success on this game, and then you clearly are trying to move on and create something bigger and better. And then, what did you feel like your your main like contribution was to that to that process? So, at the beginning of pre production, after we shipped a game, um, I'd say pretty much anyone in the studio that wants to be involved in ideas around the next project can come in, throw out their ideas. We would have, uh, you know, it basically looked like an unorganized Kanban board, right? Of just note cards with, like, wouldn't it be cool if this was in the game? Just random ideas, <laughs> not about the story, just like, hey, it'd be cool if you could uh, fast rope onto a dam from a Black Hawk helicopter and you know, there's smoke, just all these random ideas, right? And so we would throw all those ideas on that board, and then we would, as a group, uh, go through and talk about them and throw out the ones that we didn't like as much. And then the designers would get together and take the remaining cards, and they would go through and, and figure out what works and what, and what doesn't. Um, so it was kind of a process where everyone's involved at the beginning, but then you kind of have to give the reins to the designers who are going to be better at designing than the non-designers right you gotta i mean uh, the the research going into this thing chance i mean how are you guys like pulling data points to make sure that you know the because i heard you talking on another interview that like the way obviously that you load a clip into one gun is different yeah. than another you know what i mean how are you capturing those subtle details and making sure this looks legit i mean because when that when modern warfare 2 came out it really was like a wow kind of experience yeah. like playing it for the first time it felt like you know, where you were in the desert with them. Yep. So I was, you know, spent 90 plus percent of my, my work was working on the view models, which is the model in front of you, the first person weapons, anything that happens. I was, I would say I did more of just more gun focused than say the other random things outside of the guns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, with others, with the sound designers, with maybe another animator or two, we would go out to Henderson, Nevada, because we were in LA, very hard to get a hold of the weapons we wanted to use. So we go to Henderson. And we'd rent all these weapons, you know, from pistols to fully automatic, you know, 30 cal, uh, 50 cal Barrett's, like ridiculous weaponry. We'd set up sides of beef for like the sounds, glass, wood, all the different things we'd capture sounds of. We'd, the sound designers would probably put probably like 
15 field mics out there and record <laughs> the gun sounds from all different areas, right? And so I would focus on actually using the weapons, shooting them, feeling their personality. You know, because every, like in a first person game, your, your character is, it's not really you, it's, it's your shoulders down in the gun, right? Or whatever, because that's all you're seeing. You're not seeing uh, everything else. And so you have to give that personality. And that's really hard because almost every weapon, every gun reloads like one of two ways. And most of them reload one way. And so imagine if you have like four different AR-15 variants, how do you make those feel unique? Mm. And that, that was a difficulty of doing weapons animation. So the easiest way to describe like the whole character in, in uh, guns would be, I think an MP5, you've got that um, bolt release on the front. And so the classic like slapping the bolt down after you reload the MP5 or inserting the magazine in the AK-47 angled and then clicking it in. Those are all real characteristics of the weapon. You have to accentuate those to bring life into those guns so they feel different. And I still think today, you know, I, I play, I've um, been playing a lot of uh, Warzone and DMZ. Um, you know, Mark Rigsby's back there, who is my boss uh, for most of the time there. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're still killing it. Like, they still have the best feeling weapons in any shooter, as far as I'm concerned, the reloads and everything. Mm. You, you feel so, like, yeah, man, that's, that's crazy. So cool. Just the links that you guys are going to get your references is yeah. like. Yeah, we did a lot to make it unique. <laughs> so, but yeah, that was, uh, then eventually became lead, uh, lead view model animator. Uh, but this whole time from, I would say, like probably Call of Duty 2 and on, um, at the end of a project, I would actually do PR media. So with um, with game, you have like your develop. You've got you've got pre-production, you've got development, and then you have alpha, beta, and gold. Gold means release. And so by the time you're in like maybe halfway through alpha or towards towards the end of alpha, as an animator or an artist, you're not putting new content in the game. You're just fixing little things that people like the testers find. And so artists typically towards towards the end of a game cycle have more time off while the engineers are scrambling trying to fix bugs. And so they would send me, like the heads of the studio would go to like the UK or like uh, Germany or, or the, you know, Japan. And they'd be like, who's going to go to Brazil? Who's going to go to Estonia? Who's going to, you know, like Italy? And so uh, they would send me out and I would do uh, tours and just work with media, do interviews, go to all the, you know, uh, Gamescom, you know, you know, all these big events that would happen all across the world. Oh, that sucks, man. You yeah. go to all these exotic <laughs> Stay places. Stay in really nice hotels. <laughs> nice hotels. Yeah. Man, I, you know, it's... Um, it's <laughs> so even though I was focused on animation, awesome. I, I got a lot of experience in, like, PR and media, which is a cool opportunity that you don't normally get when you're working at a AAA studio as a developer. Because developers yeah. typically aren't, on average, not the kind of people that are comfortable or want to be in front of a camera no 100 percent. well I, I so i've worked with a ton of engineers yeah, yeah. it's that is rare it's super rare you, yeah. you're, you're kind of a unicorn in that way yeah i like to be a unicorn yeah. <laughs> yeah this episode is brought to you by the legacy angel network a community first investor group finding and funding companies together for the greater good as you hear from the guests on the venture lounge podcast it's obvious that the venture capital world is full of challenges uncertainties and risks Angel investing is no different. Finding, vetting, and investing in early-stage companies on your own can be overwhelming. The Legacy Angel Network is a community of investors that gather monthly, learn from each other's experiences, and leverage our collective skills to find great companies and help them succeed. What makes Legacy unique 
is our concept to exit support process. We don't simply fund startups. Legacy's investor network is directly involved in the overall development of our portfolio companies throughout their business life cycle, ultimately resulting in a higher percentage of positive exits. If you're ready to jump into the exciting world of angel investing and become a member of Legacy Angel Network, visit us at LegacyAngelNetwork.com slash venture to learn more. That's actually the first time I've publicly talked about the whole uh, kidnapping thing. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very calm place, a very safe place. Like, pretty much everyone involved in that is not alive, so I don't feel okay, like there's anyone good, I'd be upset by like, talking yeah. about it. We don't want you getting in trouble or anything, man, but... <laughs> FBI, watching me. <laughs> You're not, like, on a list or anything, right? I'm on a... I can't go to Russia. <laughs> it's like, this guy knows way too much yeah, about weapons. Yeah, I don't even remember gotta... no Russian level, you know, the whole no... Remember, no Russian. Or, I mean, remember, no Russian. Remember from Modern Warfare 2? Yeah. Where they, yeah. I'm on their shit list. <laughs> that, that did it, huh? It didn't take that, that much. That was my roommate. Or, that was my roommate that we can talk. Are we rolling? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, just, just, right. yeah keep, keep all rolling. All right, all right. Yeah, uh, keep, keep, you remember keep no going. Russian? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, uh, that was my roommate's idea. Um, and I thought he was crazy at first, but then it made sense. So just to give the backstory, um, at the time, maybe still, like maybe the most shocking uh, scene, like violent scene in a video game, right? And the whole idea is within the story of Modern Warfare 2, you had this Russian ultranationalist that wanted to bring Russia back to its former glory. Sounds kind of familiar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, basically they set up... they. There was three or four Russians that pretended to be um, Americans in the story plot line, and they went into the Moscow airport and just started mowing people down. And normally these kind of plot points are just like loading screen text, right? It's just something you tell the player, this really horrible, tragic thing happened. And then the players are like, I don't care. You know, like, oh, I read some things that happened. Bad things happened. Okay, whatever. There's no emotion. So really the only way to emotionally impact people in the way that they should be impacted is to actually put them there in that mm. experience. Yeah. Um, because we didn't want horrible things to just always happen without there being any feeling from the player. Like mm. one of the things that we wanted to do with uh, the Modern Warfare series is make people feel uncomfortable. Like the C-130 levels were supposed to make you feel uncomfortable because it's so disconnected, you know? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so to further uh, that story, you are an American who's pretending to be Russian while the Russians are pretending uh, to be Americans. <laughs> and so you're infiltrating their little group. And you go to this elevator, and the, the, the doors open, and there's, you know, like Russian TSA, and they just start getting mowed down by the Russians. And it's the only level in the entire game, and any of the games I've worked on, where you can get through without shooting a single person, which is the ironic thing, because you could actually shoot around people and pretend that you're shooting people at the Russian airport and finish the level as long as they believe that you're actually doing it, right? You just have to act, act it. Huh. But in the end, it uh, doesn't matter how you play it. Makarov, who's like the head Russian dude, he just shoots you at the end because they, they knew the whole time that you're an <laughs> undercover American. Um, and so that level got leaked uh, before... It get leaked before um, the game was out with zero context. I mean, even with context, it's 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 very shocking. But how imagine how does that even happen? Like, how does how does um, something like that get leaked? 
I think it was one of the media people had a video or something. I'm, okay. I'm not, I'm not yeah. even sure. I don't remember how it happened. Um, but yeah, it, it got Is there leaked. someone that we need to hunt down? That's the question <laughs> yeah, we're asking. I wouldn't really mess weird. with the Russians. No, 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 no. I mean the person who leaked it. I mean, oh, I don't I mean, know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Connor knows some pretty shady people in Portsmouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, some, some guy on a double wide out in Akron. I tell you what, reckon. Um, but yeah, so that got leaked, and the, I remember BBC News was all over it. Mm. Uh, at the time I was traveling, I was in the UK. We were, I think we were, it was actually the first time a game a game had been revealed at Leicester Square, which is like their their Hollywood in, in the UK. And BBC was like grilling me on like this violent level. The Parliament was meeting today about banning it and all this stuff. And I think just that week before, they were, like, voting on drone strikes and killing actual people. So I'm just like, yeah, look, guys, yeah, this is a video game. It's a story. I, I know it's shocking. We, you can pass the level. You can actually skip the level. I think it was the first two, uh, the first game where we're like, this is a very shocking level. Do you want to skip it? And you can say yes and not even play that entire level. Man, how are you? Yeah, especially in the heat of the moment. That's wild, Leicester Square and everything. Like, how were um, how are you combating that or dealing with like the flood of questions that you're getting from people and the ethics of it and everything? You know what I mean? Like, it's it doesn't back then. I mean, there's been a lot of studies since then, mm -hmm. and overwhelmingly show that video games do not cause people to be violent. Right. Right. Um, back then there were a few, and I, I would I would point to those. But honestly, you know, through media training. And, um, you know, with Activision, they, they, they want you to say, speak to an Activision rep, which is good because I didn't have to answer it. I didn't have to answer it. But in general now, if it, if it comes up, which doesn't come up very often now, like violence in video games, I just point to the studies. I'm like, hey, give me your email. I can send you a bunch of studies, you know, over 20 years or so that show that there's not a link. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and then in tandem with that, I just got, I have to mention this because it was like uh, so impactful when the game came out. But uh, it was one of the, it, it, it um, was one of the later Modern Warfare's. It might have been Modern Warfare 2, that, that online multiplayer and everything was full go at that point, right? Am I thinking correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, like one of the card shops back in uh, Blacken, Ohio, just a little tiny card shop, you know, uh, like, you know, they had uh, all kinds of games they were reselling and that kind of stuff. But uh, when that game came out, that, like, one of my buddies, uh, Tyler, that was running that shop, that was, like, revolutionary for his business. Yeah. Like, people took – he took the game and, you know, started running uh, some little tournaments that kind of, like, snowballed into, like, these massive, you know, 10, like pre 10 grand pot. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Early esports. Exactly. Yeah. That, uh, surely Modern Warfare was a, was a massive part of that. Revolution. Yeah, I, you know I what played I mean? Allied Assault competitively in like an official. Did you? Yeah, okay. I didn't. They didn't know I worked on it. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't use any cheat codes, and we didn't end up winning. But we did get pretty far. That seems like kind of a little bit of an advantage chance. <laughs> no, just think about it. Now, like, I don't have eight plus hours to play video games. Right. So people that are playing competitively, they're playing games like eight hours or so. But uh, well, I'm saying all, all that to say, like, if you want to see the impact that things like this that you all have made is creates you really just the economic impact it had in like little rural communities like the one we're from oh, yeah. was like uh nothing i'd ever seen before at the time you know what i mean people coming from uh columbus and lexington cincinnati two or three hours outside driving of it yeah yeah driving yeah. for to play call of duty with other guys yeah, yeah it's, it's fun it's yeah. um it's I a mean, very communal thing yeah i very mean that's communal. the thing about you know i think most people around our age understand this not everyone, but 
there's a lot of community in games. There's a lot of social aspects. Mm -hmm. And for instance, you're here, right? And if you're, you're going to hang out with your friends in Ohio, how are you going to do it? <laughs> you're going to get online probably with exactly. them and play a game. Because that's the only way you can really hang out. Mm. Especially now with VR multiplayer gaming, if you, you know, play something like Onward in VR, think of Onward as more like, I'd say more of a ghost recon than a Call of Duty, a little more tactical, right? Um, you feel like you're there with your buddies, you know, like crouching behind a wall, you know, shooting. You're, you're moving like a real person. You're in VR. Mm. And you have, when you're in VR, you, you form these memories, almost like a really vivid dream that you had, where when you're out of it, it's not like I was playing a game. It's like, oh, I was there with you and we did these things. That, that's how your brain takes it in because you're fully encompassed in the experience. Your involvement with the franchise, the Call of Duty franchise, being one of the co-founders was like really heavy. How do you transition to, hey, I want to do... Uh, new things, you know what I mean? What did that look like? Yeah, so um, to go to where I am now and what I'm working on now, um, 2009, 2010, going through some, some personal stuff, uh, needed to find an outlet for stress. And I was, um, you know, started watching a lot of, uh, I think it was Dream and I forgot the other, oh, Pride, the old school Japanese MMA, which was... Mm. Uh, honestly, like Japanese MMA in the 90s, I think way better than anything. Early 90s, early 2000s, I think way better than the modern MMA we have. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, they had these like walkout dances and everything, like anime style. It was, it was crazy. But anyway, so I started watching old school MMA. This is back when there was no rules other than no eye gouging and no fish hooks. But you could like kick someone in the nuts. You could <laughs> kick someone in the head when they're I, down. I remember the, the original UFC. It was... There, different weight i mean the weight classes too there's like little guys versus guys are like 400 pounds it was yeah. like this it was no holds bar and when you start seeing these little guys you know like for instance the most famous obvious would be hoist gracie mm -hmm. you know, hoist gracie 175 pounds six foot one built pretty much almost exactly like me you know um was not the best gracie by far he was probably an average gracie maybe even below average but they wanted to use him as an example of what jujitsu could do if you take someone who's two, 260 and just stacked, you know, they're always going to blame it on the muscle. Oh, he's big and strong, right? But you take the, the lanky, skinny guy and he starts choking out people that are 300-plus pounds. They're like, oh, this, this is serious. Yeah. And so I started seeing that, like early UFC, and it became less. At first, it's shocking. MMA, you know, or especially early MMA, very shocking. But as you start watching it, you start to see the technical aspects of it, and uh, especially when it comes to grappling. And so... It, piqued my interest and then when I found out um, you know there was there was Jeff Smith who was I think a purple belt at the time and Ryan Lastimosa artist and a designer blue belt it was like hey there's a there's a jiu-jitsu school opening like three or four blocks down from our studio you should go check it out and so um, I went to this it was at the time uh, legacy uh, mixed martial arts I should have worn that actually. Yeah. The legacy yeah. I still have it. Um, and so I met Alberto Crane for the first time, uh, you know, a veteran black belt, fought in King of the Cage. Um, and he just showed me some basics. Like, hey, this is how you escape mount. Like when someone's atop you, this is, you know, I was like, oh, this is really cool. This is really interesting. Um, and so I just, I think from an analytical standpoint, engineering standpoint, it was super interesting. And honestly, like the thing about jujitsu is, when someone's trying to choke you out, like all your problems go away other than that person's trying to choke me out. Mm. And so from a stress perspective, it was like, it was almost like a, it was like therapy. It's, mm. you know, like non-consensual yoga. 
Um, <laughs> That's the best description of jujitsu I've ever heard. It's like it's like folding clothes while people are still in there. There's a bunch of uh, it's to, to or, uh, there's a lot of yoga. Yes, you like yoga? All right. Cheers. Uh, to that lots one, of man. names for jujitsu. There's also Mexican ground karate. I'm not sure where that one came from, but. Um, Chance, chance admittedly, everything that I know about jujitsu is just because I'm a disciple of Rogan, you know what I mean? And he's always talking about Honestly, it. Honestly, I feel like probably about a quarter of the people that train jujitsu now are probably because of him. Probably, because man. He's always, he's always promoting it. Right. Uh, but even if he was even saying, like, talking to Dave Portnoy from Barstool or, yeah, yeah. or whatever uh, last week and was talking about how, like, uh, you know, he thought he was, or, you know, Rogan thought he knew his stuff with, like, uh, was training in Muay Thai or Thai fighting at the time. And then... Uh, when he started doing jiu-jitsu for the first time, it was, like, revolutionary. And that's really, like, that's kind of the centerpiece to all yep. these martial arts at this point, right? Yeah, I, I started um, jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai at the same time. I was better at Muay Thai. Mm. I'm built for Muay Thai, right? Tall, thin, you, yeah. know, you know, have more reach than most people in my weight class. Yeah. I don't like getting hit in the face. Um, and I like the technical aspects of jiu-jitsu. It's basically, it's like a flow chart. It's like engineering your way out of body problems, you know? Mm. Like, my arm's here, this arm's here, my leg's there. I need to get to this position. How do I get to that position so that I can set up an attack? And I've never been good at sports. Like, you know, I was slightly better than average at baseball, but I played baseball a lot. I was all tall, gangly, not coordinated. Um, so jiu-jitsu is one of the things where it's like, you know, it's not really about my natural athletic ability. I can do well just getting good at the techniques. And I still don't think I'm still, I don't consider myself good at it. I mean, yeah, if a random person isn't trained, sure, great. But I'm always training with people that are way better than me. So it doesn't really let your, your ego inflate too much. Mm. And that's what's great about it is people will come into the gym. If they have an ego, you know, they get tapped by someone 50 pounds lighter than them. Either they lose the ego or they, lo or they leave the gym. Right. You know, like one of those two things is going to happen at a, at a good jiu-jitsu gym. So. Yeah, man. Uh, I love, uh, like, the whole mind-body connection. I, like, nerd out over that whole thing. I mean, Matt and I played basketball uh, one day a couple weeks ago, and I feel like we're closer because of it. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. Closer. I'm still a little, but, I'm still a little bitter. How many elbows did you throw over you? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's my problem is I can't keep my elbows yeah. down. And, and so this whole jiu-jitsu thing led to what, you know, I'm, I'm doing now. Um, I took, you know, two of my favorite passions and games, jiu-jitsu, combined them into one. Um, so I grew up playing a lot of tycoon games, roller coaster tycoon, you know, even stuff similar like SimCity. I've, I've always been into simulation games where you have all these systems that are engineered and they're interacting to play out a story rather than a scripted story. Because mm -hmm. to me, the most interesting games are where you see something that wasn't written, it wasn't scripted to happen, but because there's so much uh, really well-made game systems, they just kind of interact and, and they play out. The, ultimate version of this would be Dwarf Fortress, which was just released uh, after 20 years, finally with graphics. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so I, I played a lot of those games, you know, versus shooters. And, you know, training jujitsu, I was like, you know, there hasn't, every fighting game is about the button mashing. You know, it's about you doing the fighting. But there's so many fight fans out there, right? There's so many fight fans. And they're more, they're not just into just, they don't just watch the fights. They're interested in, like, what gyms are they training at? Like, everything behind the scenes. And so when you spend a lot of time on the match, you're like, this would actually make a really good like tycoon simulation game. You know, you're, you're deciding, you know, how to upgrade your gym, you're dealing with different personalities, 
you've got these random NPCs that come in that, you know, like every character is procedurally made, right? So every character basically has a personality and a life history, and every character is unique. So you might have someone that came in, and their life history is they were like an abused kid, right? And because they're an abused kid, they have a higher percentage chance of having, for instance, a resilience trait, some kind of trait that makes them more mm. resilient mm. To, to, to fighting because they went through a bunch of crap as a kid, right? Um, or, if, you know, for instance, you have someone that comes in that has high strength, high agility, they're very athletic, but they have the bully trait. Well, this person might come in and win some fights and, and, and you know, get some money for your gym, but if people are getting injured because you let this very athletic bully into your gym, maybe that's not a good idea, right? Mm. Um, mm. And so you're basically managing the fighters that are coming through, you're upgrading the equipment, you're starting off in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro. Um, when I was in Brazil, I lived two streets from this favela, um, Moco Santo Amaro, and it's uh, one of the, I guess you'd say, more pacified favelas in Brazil. I wouldn't you know, recommend you just walking in there or anything, it's a bad <laughs> idea. Um, but you're not necessarily going to be greeted with people with, you know, AKs or something when you, when you get there. Um, and so some of my, uh, a couple of my best friends were from that favela, my best friends in Rio. And so something that I, you know, realized, like, when we see movies, I mean, Call of Duty is guilty of this, games, every time you see the favelas, whether it's City of God or Modern Warfare 2, um, it's all about the police and the, and the bad guys shooting each other, the mm -hmm. drugs, and those are very real things. Um, but people don't realize that most of the people in there are just good people trying to get by, you know, just like any other poor area. You go to, you go to any ghetto in America, and, and most people are just trying to make it, right? right? And there's definitely a higher percentage of people doing bad things, but it's still a minority of the people within that area. Right. And so one of the things I want to make sure that, we, you know, we're trying to do with this game, or we are doing with this game, is to represent, you know, the people from the favela is not just all drug dealers, all, you know, involved in crime, that there's, like, regular families there just trying to mm -hmm. make it happen, right? There's a there's a thoughtfulness to that, yeah. That I really appreciate, and I I had no idea that 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 you guys think through the gaming in that way. I think that that's uh, that's that's inspiring. Yeah, and we have um, you know we have some. It's not just Americans involved in this game. We have uh, our environment artist is in Vancouver. Um, we have our engineers in Seattle. Designers in New Hampshire. Character artists. Uh, is in Rio de Janeiro, probably like a metro stop or two from that favela. We have another character artist uh, contractor who's in Sao Paulo. Um, you know, we have a, a advisor, also the kind of a cultural advisor um, as well that's involved in, that was actually involved in doing like demographic studies in the favelas in Rio. Um, and of course I live there too. My wife's Brazilian. So we have a lot of input from Brazilians because I, we're going to piss off somebody, of course, but I'm trying to make it <laughs> yeah. as, you know, honest as, well, as I, I mean, can. Well, you, know? you can't make everyone happy. Just because you piss somebody off doesn't mean you did something wrong. Yeah, but yeah. It, I'm probably more likely to piss off some rich white person in San Francisco than someone <laughs> who actually grew up in the favela. Because I can guarantee you, like, very few people there will be offended. <laughs> right. So. Chance, that's cool, man, that you're like, uh, you know, your art is intimidating, like imitating the experiences you're having, and then you're also being intentional about how you influence life with the things that you're making, you know? Um, like, 
what would you say, just from that lens of like knowing what goes into a good game, um, knowing what goes into good tech, good systems, you say, do, do you think that played into um, just your connection to the investment space and starting to look at other companies? Like, you know, how to use that experience to uh, understand like what's a tech company that's going to exceed, what's, uh, com you, know, you know what I'm saying? Um, I, now it just feels like instinct for the most part, you know, just mm. working in the industry now for, like 22 years, not including the dentist who took over Compton. Um, <laughs> that one, I think that needs to included. be included. That's worth yeah. another 10 years Just, experience yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, just it's, uh, that's the thing about consulting is you do it long enough. Um, I mean, sorry, you work in an industry long enough when you become a consultant, a lot of the stuff that you have to, you know, information you have to give, it's to you, it's like common sense. Seems almost too easy sometimes. Mm. Um, but just because you've been around the industry for so long, you just kind of pick up experience in all areas. Even though I wasn't an engineer um, or a designer, I can sit in those meetings and understand most of what's going on in the conversations, even though I'm not going to be the person writing the code. Mm. Yeah, so that's definitely influenced. Uh, like, what, I guess, what are you, what other than instinct, can you itemize that for us a little bit? Like, what's it look like, a, good, a, a tech company that, you believe in, you know, what are the pieces that you're looking for, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I would say, obviously, most things I say are probably obvious. You know, experience, and it's not everything, because there's some hungry people that aren't very experienced that do great things. Mm. Um, one of the issues I see is, like, sometimes you see people put together, like, this all-star roster, right? Um, and it's almost like if you took, like, all the best soccer players and put them on the same team you're like oh this team's gonna be great but mm. that's not how it works mm -hmm. there's there's like there's chemistry then there's people in their prime like a lot of people after they've done their big thing they don't have as much energy left where there might be someone less experienced that is more excited that's actually going to do a better job than the person who has a huge resume that everyone knows right yeah. mm. um, so it's kind of a mix of finding the people that have the experience that still have uh, that passion left you know, um, and the people that are newer and probably have even more passion but might have less experience. Yeah, you know, it, there's something to that. And, like, I think all streams of life and uh, in sports even. Like, so I, don't, I know you guys probably don't follow a lot of basketball. I just got back into the magic after, like, 20-something years. Okay, so. okay, cool, awesome. <laughs> yeah, so, I, Bull Bull got me into the magic. Okay. He's like a magical unicorn himself. I actually got to... <laughs> Back at the old arena, I got to to meet some really, some players and stuff and, and stuff like that when they had a private uh, cigar club. They don't have one anymore, but um, uh, where I was going with that was the Lakers, yeah. right? You have basically five guys starting who will be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and they suck. Like, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know so, some sometimes you can grab, but see, not only are you, are you grabbing the most talented, but you're with them. You're bringing their egos. Yep, and you're bringing and, and so sometimes, at least what I've seen, um, there's not a lot of humility in the room, um, and and then you see that when they come together to perform. Yeah, and so you get a you don't get the product you wanted. Yeah, you sell tickets, but you don't you don't get the product that you want. But if you get some of the young players, the, yep. the people that are drafted first, second, third round. Yep. They're really good, but they're still they respect these veterans yeah. that are leading the team. So yeah. to me, it's better to have those those earlier draft picks mixed yep. with the veterans yep. to create that 
happy balance. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. That's awesome. Chance, you got to talk about some of the other stuff you're doing, man. You were mentioning uh, some, like, ecological things that you're involved in. Um, uh, like I said, I went to Full Sail University. Um, Gary Jones, who is the president of Full Sail, he was involved at the Nature Conservancy. Mm. Um, and he worked alongside Rosemary Mann, who is who I work with directly um, at Arshrock. And so um, Arshrock is this entity of the Atlantic Council. And just a little background, Atlantic Council was formed post-World War II mm. to tighten European and U.S. relations. Now it's like an international think tank. Typically, they're working with, like, energy, weapons trafficking, like, all these big global political issues, very opposite the game industry. Um, but uh, there was a donor, uh, Adrian Arch, down in Miami, and she donated a bunch of money along with uh, the Rockefeller Foundation to open a climate resilience division. Um, and that's where Arshrock got started. And so... Most people, when they think climate, they think mitigation. Like, how do we, you know, pollute less, all these things. Um, climate resilience is like, we're already screwed. How do we keep people safe, right? Um, and so we deal with anything that's climate-related and keeping humans safe from it, but we do have a very large focus on heat and heat waves. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we're doing, which actually plays into um, martial arts tycoon, is our center created a heat wave... Uh, naming and categorization system just like hurricanes. Like, if a hurricane's coming to Florida, one of the first things you ask is like, how, how, what's the category? And you're like, oh, it's category four. It's like, oh, shit, we better get going, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you're like, oh, there's a heat wave, and then someone's like, oh, how about the heat wave? It's like, I don't know, dang all hot, man, I reckon. You know, that is the Florida mentality. Exactly. Yeah, and, you described and, it pretty well. There's no like a heat wave. There's no. Welcome to Florida. Yeah. yeah. Well, I tell you what, man. <laughs> well, dang, most jumping extra high today. <laughs> um, I like your Florida voice. Chance. It's, it's kind of Oklahoma meets Florida. It's yeah. kind of Florida man and an Okie. Very Florida man. It's like King of the Hill meets Florida. Um, and so. They create a system where it's like, oh, it's a category two, and its name is Bertha. It's going to burn your face off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so what's cool about, um, you know, how one of, the, one of the avenues we're using to, to reach, like the whole idea of uh, our shock is um, we want to reach a billion people with climate resilient solutions. A billion is a lot of people. And so that's through games, right? So we're using games as our main avenue. Uh, within Martial Arts Tycoon, because you're training outside, we have a temperature, like for every day, we take the median temperatures of Rio de Janeiro and we kind of randomize off from that. We add some noise. Um, but every day there's a very small chance there could be like a heat wave, right? And so if there's a heat wave, there's going to be a warning and it says, oh, there is a category two heat wave. Its name is Jose. Um, and so based off of the intensity of the heat wave, you have to actually protect your fighters. Hmm. So if it's a small heat wave, you might just like, okay, I've, I've got some some drinking fountains, some hydration, we're, we're good to go. If it's stronger, maybe you need to add shade. Um, maybe you need to shut down the gym if it's a really ex extreme day, right? If you don't have any shade to, to train in. Um, and so through that, when people play the game, they're going to see this whole category one, two, the names. And then once this uh, system gets released amongst the, the world, um, when they see it, they're going to already know what it means because they saw this in a video game, uh -huh. right? That's um, really cool. Yeah, and so uh, California, uh, Gavin Newsom signed um, a bill to start adopting it. It's being piloted in probably like, I don't know how many cities, probably close to 10. Wow, but man. within, I bet you within five years, it's just going to be the, the common system when we talk about heat waves. Because heat waves actually kill more people uh, than any other natural occurring oh, event, wow. right? 
And the reason we don't think that is because if, if, you're, if you die from a heat wave, you don't die from a heat wave, you die from a stroke. Right. Or you die from something related to heat. Mm. You know, it's not like I get hit by a, a, a porpoise that came out of the Indian River and smacked me on the face, death by porpoise. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the evening news, I mean, there, you know, um, you know, Craig Richardson's not getting on there and saying, oh, today Mrs. Smith died because she was hot. I mean, no one's doing that. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, so we kind of overlook heat as, as, a, as something that affects people. Huh. Um, but yeah, so in, involved in that, and uh, when, when's your game? By the way, pl- plug it, man. When's your uh, is is your game out or is it coming out? No, like it's it? our game. Um, we haven't um, announced a a release. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our plan is to do an early access. Um, we'd you know like to you know roughly a a year from now or so. Um, mm. But like I said, I'm not making any official statements. Very ballpark. Yeah, okay. I mean, do. you piss off a bunch of people. They're like, "Why isn't it out yet?" You know? But you could, and you could do it for all of our viewers. Yes, if there's anyone that would started, yes, there's a lot. If only there there's were in, any viewers. investors watching this podcast, <laughs> that, that would definitely help this hack happen in within a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so uh, you know, initially we were going. I guess it was kind of a you would call it a big indie budget game, like kind of bigger for indie, but mm-hmm. definitely far from AAA. Now, just because you know how the, the the economic climate has not been so great the last couple of years, um, we're kind of taking a different approach where we're doing it more divided into, for instance, we're doing Brazil and Jiu-Jitsu at first, right? Um, and then we'd li- like to release other releases that go with the base game. So now, after that, it could be uh, Muay Thai in Thailand. Right? Mm-hmm. So now you're in Thailand, training Muay Thai, and then Very wrestling cool. and in the U.S., U.K. and boxing. And then you could say, for instance, maybe drop MMA, and bring all those together, and based off of what you have, what you know, different disciplines, you can teach your fighters in those disciplines, right? And so it's um, kind of a strategic release, I guess you could say that. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the idea is start off with a really good, solid base game. You know, I want to do Brazil because it's interesting. Like, you know, we see a lot of games in New York City and Los Angeles, but hmm. uh, Rio de Janeiro is, is a very interesting location. Um, and uh, what, What's your wife think about this? Uh, she likes it. Yeah, she, she thinks it's cool. Um, she'll tell me where we're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's helpful, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah like, awesome. like last, la- uh, last week she was telling me about, um, you know, this, this girl who kind of has, like, a little bit of a fro. She was like, it should be bigger. I'm like, the problem with, like, you have to have everyone's head. <laughs> when you start adding extra really big hair... Now you're walking through a doorway and the hair is clipping through the, the door or something. <laughs> or we have any headwear. And so, you know, she's obviously looking at a lot of the things that... Aesthetics, yeah. The aesthetics, right? Um, but, yeah, she's, she's very helpful. So. And, and you guys have kids, too? No, we don't have any kids. No, no kids? No. Just some furry cats. <laughs> oh. Um, Chance, are you, so is everyone else in your studio in Orlando or are you guys all over the place? Uh, all over. So we're, we're based in Orlando. And the, the, the long-term plan is to basically, um, you know, we have, like I said, remote people in Vancouver, New Hampshire, um, and uh, Seattle, and Brazil. But a lot of the younger talent we're going to be working with is coming out of UCF, out of Full mm. Sail. And mm. there's also existing talent working in Orlando. So I see us slowly scaling our Orlando presence to the point that we do have a physical space in Orlando. Um, but the thing about 
you know, Orlando versus the world is eight billion versus half a million right. to, to choose from, right? Right. So if, if you want to make a really, really good game, it's better to pick amongst eight billion people. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know? completely. So you combine the both. And so the idea is, you know, we have that base in Orlando, and then hopefully as we evolve, attract some of the contractors to actually come and work in Orlando as well. Um, Which I think is awesome. I mean, yeah, I mean, one, I mean one, uh, uh, one of the things that we really, like, push hard here, like, being this little local network um, is we want to help grow the local economy, you know, Ooh. through through our, our we're a community first investment group, yeah. and so we want the activity that we do. We want to do it with the community, but we also do want to do it for the community. And when when you start doing the kind of activity that you guys are doing, that really does help build a local economy. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an ex an exporting of a product, an importing of a dollar. Um, there's there's job creation all. Of, um, all of that stuff. So I mean, yeah. I mean, kudos to you guys, man, for just not only looking out for like education and the environment, all all these other activities, but on the economic side, you guys are are making a huge impact. Yeah, I, th I think that um, you know, everyone obviously when it comes to Central Florida, Orlando specifically, they, most people outside of the area think Disney, they think right. tourism, mm. um, which is it's it's obviously there. But anyone that lives in Orlando, we almost feel like there's two cities mm -hmm. that are connected. There's you know, everything t 10 minutes south of downtown and further, which is tourist land and, and the rest. And a lot of people that live around downtown, we just don't go very far right. south, right? Yeah. Um, but this, like Central Florida, you know, including Brevard, we have, you know, amazing engineers. We yeah. have amazing tech, like technology. Um, there's so much more talent here that doesn't necessarily have the PR that right. Disney World has. Right. right. So, yeah. What do you, and just being as tapped into Central Florida as you are, what do you see coming down the line, uh, VR related, engineering related, you know, um, your industry? Um, you know, I, I'm seeing a lot of crossover. But before, if you looked at military simulation stuff early 2000s, it looked horrible. It looked like it was 20 years behind. And now you're seeing a lot of crossover between people that study in games to work in like simulation. Mm. And so military, or just like simulation in general, because uh, Orlando is actually the, the simulation capital of the world as far as the most sim companies, uh, yeah. VR, sims, aerospace, right? Um, so you're going to see more, more of the crossovers, the, the crossover of that talent. You know, and you see that also from entertainment, other forms of entertainment and games, actors coming over to, to, to work in games. And so there's just going to be more of a merging of our different industries, I think talent going wow. between the two. I think that's good. And the environment that you're operating in and, um, yeah, like the culture you're a part of in Central Florida, what we're all a part of here, it is a bunch of people that are starting to realize that they don't really have to stay in their lane. Like yeah. they can make other things better with their skill set. Um, and that's the power of something like really encompassing like venture capital where there's people from all these different backgrounds, right. angel investing yeah. people from all these different backgrounds. Uh, that come together to uh, make other industries better. Yeah. I think that's what we're doing here. Yeah. I think one of the most frustrating things that I've seen or just experienced the last several years is that how much, I, I, f I feel like we had such stimulus, like we had so much economic stimulus for so long and quantitative using one, two, three, four, bailouts, all this stuff that in the end, the people that benefit from that are mostly the rich, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. they, yeah. they end up with the, uh, the, the, the really cheap loans where they can get tons of money right. and invest, right? And I feel like that kind of created a lot of the blockchain, metaverse, yep. crypto boom. Yep. 
because VCs were like, we got all this money, what do we do with it? We got to find something to get excited about. And I really believe in blockchain as a tech, but as, as we've seen, 99% of it's been, been crap, right? right. Mm. And the most frustrating thing is meeting VCs, and not so much now because you know blockchain and crypto has right. tanked, is how they're just throwing millions and millions of dollars at these random companies that would put up like a splash page on the internet with, with some, some guy in some other country made like an unreal environment. And they're like, this is our metaverse. And they're just throwing tons of money at these things. And they don't... With no due diligence. Yeah, I, That exactly. blows my mind. It and and just and then when you bring something that's been, you know, tried and true and, and proven over time that not isn't the hottest trend, you know, where it's like, hey, you pay money for a game and then you get to play it. Crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's no crypto coins. There's no. Yeah. Um, while they're all distracted by these new trends, I think they're missing out on um, a lot of opportunities that aren't necessarily the latest, greatest, hottest, trendy thing, but they're they're proven. They've, right. they've been occurring. For many years and they've been successful um, yeah, you know what i've seen a lot at least in the angel space in brevard county i can't i'm not going to speak to orlando but the angel space in brevard county they're looking for more of the sure proven thing yes. here hands down like our little network and our little neck of the woods our little part of the world like they want to see things that are tried true proven that they can rely on um yeah. there's not i mean they believe in the like you said, the technology of blockchain, they, they love it from a security aspect yeah. and maybe from even a transactional in, in some cases, yeah. but, um, but they are, they're way more into, you know, created a product. Mm. I shipped it. Someone bought that product. I shipped yeah. it to them. And then, and then I created a job and brought back a dollar and made that investor some money. They love that. Yeah. yeah. They love that. That's simple. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I think that some Sometimes people get really distracted with the new hottest thing. I, I always use, um, I actually use a jujitsu metaphor for this. There is this, there's this guy, if you watch the Rogan podcast, you've probably seen him on there, John Donaher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bald, bald guy, always wears a rash guard. Oh man, baller. Yeah. He's like a, he's like a philosopher of jujitsu. He does always wear a rash guard. Yeah, yeah, always. <laughs> um, and he kind of, you know, made the whole leg game in jiu-jitsu more popular, right? Mm-hmm. So classically in jiu-jitsu, we're always focused on there's, there's, there's the guard, right? And you've seen this in, like, UFC where basically someone's on their back and they've got their legs wrapped around them, right? And then that person's on top, right? And they're going for arm bars on the bottom and whatnot. So traditionally everyone focused on passing the guard, getting around the legs, and then getting into a mount position or side control and then attacking, and, and this guy, John Donher was like, well, you're ignoring 50% of the body. You're ignoring the first half. Like, you're basically, everyone's focused on this, and you're ignoring this, right? So for me, I see these really big gaming trends. You know, when we were doing Modern Warfare, there's all these first-person shooters that are modern day, just lemmings, you know, just follow, follow, follow. Well, everyone was ignoring some other popular genres. For instance, Tycoon Simulation Games have been around for a while. Um, they're not, you know, they typically don't sell 30 million copies like a Call of Duty, um, unless you're The Sims, which would be like 200 million copies. Um, but a lot of investors are ignoring some of these, you know, fourth or fifth most popular genres of games, right? Mm. That, and, and there's a lot of hardcore gamers that are really into these kinds of games that are really hungry for it, uh, but they're not getting the love and the attention they need. So, um, I think that's why the idea of behind a martial arts tycoon is interesting because you're merging this MMA martial arts community 
with another community, which are like tycoon gamers, right? And we actually did um, a market survey on our game. We I put together a little video and a description of the game. And uh, one of the reasons we want to do this is uh, I had this theory that even though most you know people that watch UFC aren't necessarily roller coaster tycoon gamers, I bet you they're wanting to cross over because the idea is so fresh and new because it's a fighting game unlike any other fighting game that's existed because it's more of management. And so I think it was something like, even though 30% of martial arts and MMA fans are uh, normally interested in tycoon simulation games, in our case, 82% were interested, right? Mm. So we almost tripled. Wow. So we have this demographic, which is people who play these games already. They play Roller Coaster Tycoon, Planet Coaster. Who will play it? Because they'll play any tycoon game, right? Two Point Hospital. It's a game about building hospitals. <laughs> Sold, I think, around three million copies or so. Jeez. But how many hospital fans are there? You go up to someone, you're like, hey, you into hospitals? They're like, what? <laughs> it's like, I watched General Hospital with my mom in the 90s. And I know a lot of people that are trying to avoid hospitals. Yeah, but, but if you ask someone, hey, are you into MMA? Are, are you into UFC, you know, martial arts? Like, you ask 100 people, a lot of those so people are going to So hospital is right. not a buzzword. No, no, not a, yeah, not, but you, not can, a thing. you can make a game okay. about building okay. hospitals and sell three million. What if you make a game about something that's actually popular? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think they're interested at that point, man. They're interested in the craft of it. Like, I like that you're identifying those kind of uh, lanes that aren't fully uh, filled with those missed opportunities because it really is like when you're playing Hospital Tycoon or whatever, I, I think they're interested in in the systems, like how the game yeah, the feels. Systems, exactly. Like, yeah. So that, those people are in those systems no matter what what you're doing, right? Yeah. If you're doing hospitals, if you're doing a zoo. It's like know, a creative work. exercise, like yeah. you're doing this. You're managing that, a business, yeah, more or right, less, right? right. Um, but then when you combine the people that are interested in the actual topic, fighting, Mm. Um, you have kind of these two markets now, right? Um, so I think in the end, the overall results were in the 80-something 80, 80 percent of people surveyed out of 1,000 were interested in the concept. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so I think it's a unique experience that I'm excited about releasing. Chance, um, bring us home here, dude. Like what Matt hinted at earlier, but like uh, tell us, you know, for the, the kid that's listening right now that's wanting to get into your lane and you can see how profitable that's been for you just from like uh, what you've drawn from your experiences and uh, like gotten into um, the angel or the, you know, the investing space, the, you know, making an impact on the environment. Like it all starting, it started and ends with your gaming career, right? You know, so yeah, yeah. Um, how do they get into what you get in? What kind of advice would you give them? Um, there's so much to the game industry. So there's pretty much a job for every kind of person. You know, it's not just art jobs, not just engineering. There's marketing, there's sound, there's, there's everything. So typically when someone approaches me, it's like, hey, I'm interested in making games. I say, okay, what are you, what are you good at and what do you like? And if they're good at the same thing that they like, that's a really good start, right? If you're like, well, I'm, I'm good at math and I like math. All right. Like, how much do you like math? Like, I love math. Okay, maybe I look at engine programming. You know, that's mm. super hardcore. But, or they're like, I'm not good at math. And here's the thing is you don't have to be, you know, even some engineers aren't that great at math. It right. depends on what you're doing. If you're writing, like, rendering code, you better be good at math, pathfinding. Most engineers are, but some aren't, right? Um, or they say, for instance, I'm, I'm an artist. So I'm like, okay, so there's animation, there's sound, there's modeling, all these different things. And the great thing is you can learn everything online for free now for the most part. So I say if you're, say, in high school, middle school, you know, go on YouTube, get the Unreal Engine or Unity or something, get the Unity Engine, 
and start doing tutorials and just keep doing it. But a lot of people are not, they, they don't discipline themselves that well. Mm. Um, so those are the people that should probably look at going to a school like Full Sail. I mean, even if you are a discipline, you, are, uh, you can gain from a school like Full Sail or another gaming school, right? Um, but don't wait until college. Like, you know, honestly, we should be teaching kids to code in elementary school. Yep. It, it should be like a second language. Absolutely. Um, because that second language as, as a programming language will probably benefit them more uh, than most second languages they would ever study that aren't programming languages, right? Mm. It teaches kids, it teaches people to think. A lot of people don't think logically. They don't, not good at problem solving. So even if they don't end up becoming a coder, they've been taught this logic that helps them actually solve other problems outside of programming. I have one, I have one final question. What drives you? Like what, like, you know, the core of like who you are, like what, what drives you? And, you know, is there, is there something that you kind of just live by um, internally that like kind of just moves you forward, pushes you forward? Um, I would say like uh, every, everything that I work on now, you know, any project I'm involved in, any serious project, it's more than just like a way to make money. You know, it's, it's gonna have some sort of impact outside of just like the money aspect, right? Because mm -hmm. once you kind of do, you, you, you know, get to a certain point where you've uh, had a certain amount of like, you know, superficial success, right? You can pay your bills, have a little extra. You get diminishing returns after that, right? Like if, if you you give someone you know a million dollars, right, or you give them a hundred million dollars, you know the the happiness level of the person that received a hundred million dollars is probably not going to be any different or much different than the person that received a million, right? Um, and so I like to just work on projects that have, like I said, some other impact. So for for this game, um, you know, I have some connections out in Rio where I would love it if we could, through this video game, actually sponsor some kids in the favela hmm. to go train at some of these schools that are nearby that awesome. are typically too expensive for them. Because jiu-jitsu is not uh, a cheap, it's not a cheap sport. It's hmm. not as cheap as, say, like football, soccer, right? Um, and so one of my goals is to, you know, there's a couple foundations that we've connected to, haven't really done anything yet, um, but like get some kids sponsored. Because there's this kid, awesome. Igor, that I met through YouTube, actually. Um, a YouTube channel that this, I think is a Danish guy, just went to the favelas in Rio and just got tours from people that live there. And this guy, Igor, he's basically our story. Like, I was like, you were our main character. You know, he grew up in the favela. Um, he got into jiu-jitsu, and that's what kept him out of, you know, getting in trouble, right? Mm. And so now he's, I want to say, like, maybe like a 20, 19-year-old black belt, mm. you know, and now he's running his own social program in his favela. Right? Oh, wow. Um, and so, obviously, we need some monetary success to, like, be able to, to, to fund that. But honestly, it doesn't take that much money to, to right. sponsor some kids to, to, to train. Um, so, basically, just, like, if, it, if the end result is loving on others, then, then, then it's good for me, you know. That's huge, man. That's everything. It's all about people. Yeah. That's cool. Well, cheers, man. Thanks cheers. so much for coming. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. Appreciate you, cheers, man. Cheers, y'all. <laughs> Shane's Glasgow, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys.